Dotnet Rocks episode 870, recorded live Monday, May 6th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. And by Franklins.net, makers of Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at GesturePak.com. And by Diatom, developers of the .NET Rocks mobile app, available now for Windows Phone, iPhone, and Android phones. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard. We're geeking out again. This time, yep, it's nanoparticles, nanotechnology. Uh, well, it's that's the most asked for show. It's actually bubbled to the top now that we've locked down all the other things. You know, after spending a bit of research time looking for stories about how nanotechnology is being used, I got to say... This is probably the most practical science fiction-like science that I've uh, experienced uh, out of all the Geek Out shows. It is interesting, isn't it? And we'll we'll get into that a bit because there's a bunch of different areas that nanotech cover. But hey, I got to read a comment from one of the Geek Out shows. Absolutely. Let's do it. So this is a, a comment from 834, and that's the first Geek Out we did on nuclear uh, technology. Right. Uh, the one that caused a lot of kerfuffle, actually. But, uh, Quite you know, a I, kerfuffle. Yeah, I kind of <laughs> like the fact that there were some people who said we weren't enough anti-nuke and some people who said we weren't enough pro-nuke. So that's yeah. sort of they're like we, we sort of slid down the middle on that one pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this comment comes from Brian Smithson, who says, uh, Good show, guys. After a two-week background check, I was able to tour our local... Catabwa nuclear station a few years back. My tour guide was one of the shift managers, and one of the things that struck me was his incredible difference in the volume of fuel needed. He said mm-hmm. a typical coal-fired plant required in excess of 100 tons of fuel every day, and his plant required two tons every 18 months, yep. which was amazing. Keep up the great work. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Brian, totally with you. You know, we talked a fair bit about the fuel chain here. And, uh, and, and to be clear, uh, a light water reactor has a bunch of pre-processing that goes on that consumes a lot more uranium ore than just the two tons that actually got shipped to the plant. Sure. But even then it would be like another hundred tons, uh, for every 18 months, which is still trivial in comparison to what a coal fire plant goes through. Right. And as we've done all the other shows in this topic area, and we've talked about thorium and and so forth, we've sort of come clear on this idea that if we're going to start trying some of these other technologies, especially thorium, it's going to be developing that fuel chain that's sort of the cornerstone of the whole thing. Until we yeah. can actually get the material, we we can't uh, we can't make it into a product. Absolutely, it's clearly a lot more abundant and requires a lot less manufacturing and a lot less processing to get it going. But and it, this is what I was really trying to to talk to the our guests about, you know, there are downsides, there are sure. challenges and they're not trivial challenges. So you know, while the pro-thorium people are, you know, saying this is, you know, the golden ticket, everybody, you know, any any good scientific mind really knows that you have to look at it from all sides. And that there's billions of dollars in research to be spent. Yep. You know, the, I think the biggest thing that came home with me over this whole thing was actually thinking in terms of the 30-year lifespan of a plant mm-hmm. from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. 
You're going to spend all this money up front. You're going to build this thing. It's going to run for a certain length of time. It's going to be worn out. And then you're going to basically shut it down and build another one or rebuild it. Mm. And especially when you talk about stuff like um, those gas turbines and the molten salt reactors Mm. and thorium, for that matter, nobody actually knows What's going to happen over the course of 30 years with these different kind of reactants at different temperatures under different stresses? We just right. don't actually know. And it's a big bet to be made. Now, do I think that bet ought to be made? Yeah. And I think it, it this is when it comes down to it, it's like this is not actually capitalism. Again, this is the social good this is your government the people itself getting together and saying it's worth spending money on this once so that we can all benefit from it long term right agreed uh so thanks so much for your comment brian and i'll send a mug out to you right away and if you'd like a dotnet rocks mug you can write a comment on the website at dotnetrocks.com or on any of our mobile apps for iphone android and WinPhone 8 and 7 built by the great guys at diatom enterprises well, uh, like I said before, this is quite a sci-fi topic to me. You know, I, 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 you know, when I think about nanotechnology, I think of science fiction writers, and and then looking at the stuff that people are doing, it's here, it's today, it's not science fiction. There, there are pieces of it that are here. Yeah, you know, there's there's different bits of it. It was um, Richard Feynman. The, the great, great scientist, no other way to describe Richard Feynman except great, great scientist, wrote a paper in 1959 called Plenty of Room at the Bottom. And I'll put a link in the show notes here. Okay. And he basically described the whole idea of nanotechnology at a really fundamental level, just like there's lots of room to get smaller Mm -hmm. for all kinds of things, for data storage, for manipulation of information, for healthcare. It's just astonishing how his mind grasped long before we could do any of this stuff. Right. The possibilities there. And even... Uh, you know, great writers like uh, Arthur C. Clarke wrote about it after Feynman's original vision. Uh, but you know that you know these days nanotechnology breaks it down to a lot of different areas, stuff like nanomaterials, right. like carbon sure. nanotubes, uh, and nanoelectronics, which I think was the thing we do the most. We don't even think about this anymore. But every single one of us right now, if you're listening to this on a computer or if you ha- are you using a smartphone, that's nanotechnology in action. Absolutely. Right. And also healthcare. Um, I was astounded to find uh, all of the amazing things that are going on with uh, in the in healthcare, not just in healthcare, but in, you know, treating diseases and uh, coming up with new ways to uh, meld nanotechnology with biology. So if uh, we're going to define nanotech, really, then you, you just got to get to the core concept here, which is the nanometer or the billionth of a meter billionth of a meter really right. really small really small uh almost too small to get your head around the, the the size i think that human can still get their head around really is a is a micrometer yeah right which is really uh a a thousandth of a meter and so yeah. when we talk about a human hair runs somewhere between 10 and 15 micrometers and when you get into nanometers you are talking about um Something a thousand times smaller than that. But we've been manufacturing in the nanometer range now since the, uh, since the very, like the, the very first processor. You go back to like the Intel 8008. 
that was done with 10 uh, micrometer technology, basically hair size scale, but really rapidly. You know, the first time they got below a micrometer, got down in like the 800 nanometer range, was the first generation Pentium, so in the 90s. So now when we're talking about uh, nanometers in terms of uh, CPUs, what is it that's actually that small? Is it the wires that are connecting the circuits together that are that small? The core concept, when they do nanolithography, which is what this technology is called, each piece, you remember the transistor is made up of three bits, right? Mm. You start at N-dope material and P-dope material. And so you have two ends on either side and a P in the center or vice versa. Each one of those nodes is at whatever resolution of nanolithography you can handle today. So if you talk about like your your core i7 today, current generation i7, probably a, Clark, a Clarkdale processor, is 32 nanometers. So it's not like they're sitting there connecting things with wires. They're actually no. stamping out and printing out, uh, you know, things that are just naturally that are automatically connected to each other by the design. They it, it's called nanolithography, lithography like printing, where they're yeah. literally using lasers. And you, that's the fun thing when you start talking about nanometers is that different spectrum of light actually oscillates in the nanometer range. So red light lasers are like in the 700 nanometer range. Wow. And, and, you know, blue light gets down into the 400s. So to be able to cut a trace or make a mark that's 32 nanometers wide, you have to pull some pretty serious tricks right. to get it that narrow. We're already making traces that are smaller than red blood cells. Wow. Right? Like we, they, that's the fun part is just realizing, and you, just like you're saying, nanotechnology is everywhere. We've been relying on it for years and years and years. We're mm -hmm. making some interesting new breakthroughs, which I think we should, you know, we'll get into these different areas. But just be aware, like we've been doing this for some time. There's a big debate about Moore's law ending in the sense that we're running out of ways to make those traces smaller. Right, right. That be, and it's because of light. Because they use light to focus in to cut these traces so finely, we're we're getting to the end of the visible spectrum where you can't use lenses to focus the light anymore because it's just too fine. Although I was just reading a paper uh, uh where they're experimenting with being able to cut 2 nanometer wide traces. Now, how many atoms of silicon is that? <laughs> and you are right on it, sir. When you get down to a single nanometer, right? When you talk about one nanometer, you're now talking about twice the width of a helium atom. Yeah, you're talking molecules here. Yes. Halves of molecules. There are molecules bigger than that. Yeah. Right? That's how small we're talking. So like a helium atom, which is a small atom in the scheme of things. About a half a nanometer across. Jeez. So, yeah, we're getting right down there. You, you know, below nanometers, you start talking about picometers. And in picometers, you are talking atom-sized. Hmm. So, you know, stuff stuff gets pretty weird as to, as to what you, when you want to get down that small. It's so already pretty weird, Richard Campbell. <laughs> it's already weird. <laughs> well, and one of the things that happens when you start talking about, like, if you talk about the cool part of nanotechnology, the one that everyone gets excited about, you, you talk about the stuff that was in science fiction. It was building nanites, little robots right. that are and that small. And that's the stuff that freaks out my wife. That's well, why sure. 
she doesn't want to listen to this show after it's recorded. She's afraid, you know, that little robots are going to infect her body and, you know, some government's going to take over her world. Well, and, and, you know, so Eric Drexler is the guy who wrote a lot of this stuff right at the beginning. He wrote a great book called The Engines of Creation. And the new ones are available online, so I'll, I'll actually, you know, put a link to this. But he's the guy who originally came up with the concept of gray goo. So what he was talking about was that we build these tiny machines that are able to build copies of themselves by basically pulling the atoms together that they need. Mm. And so they're self-replicating. They're, they're building little nanite factories for themselves. And because of geometric progression, within a few hours, you could have millions of these nanite reproducers running and consuming everything around them. And there's been, you know, uh, great movies made about this kind of just stuff disassembling in front of you. And, and well, it's- you know, the blob, right? I mean, that's the f- <laughs> that's a fundamental fear that a humans have, right? Is that this unknown substance eats things and grows. Yeah. And just takes right. and, and turns it into more of its own stuff. And, yeah. and Drexler himself is on record saying, I wish I'd never said gray goo. <laughs> Be- because it's what everybody latched on to. Yeah. But uh, I, I, my, where I got really excited about nanotechnology, again, in science fiction, was Neil Stevenson's book called Diamond Age. And in Diamond Age, and that's from the 80s as well, just like Drexler's stuff, he really talked about how there were nanite wars going on in this world. That there were bad nanites that were attacking people, and then there were good nanites that were fighting back, and you'd have literal dust storms of nanites. All right, well, you know, that doesn't seem like such a weird uh, thing to me if you think about what goes on with white blood cells and yep. and all of the bacteria in your in your body that are duking it out you you have more genetic material and bacteria in your body than you do you yeah in your body and true. you know and you look at ants and the way that they uh fight each other and uh you know fighting is just the way sort of life uh, uh uncivilized life anyway uh, uh sets itself up and more and more you're seeing, especially if you start playing in the healthcare of the space, that we're banging up against the way life works with DNA and the like as well. Hmm. And, and that that's an interesting piece of all this. But I, I think I want to put molecular nanotechnology to bed because other than a few kind of cool experiments, uh, for the most part, you know, building machines out of atoms has never really become yeah, anything. That's, and that's really not what it's all about. It, nanotechnology and nanoparticles are about making uh, particles that behave the way, you know, that the, the do very specific and targeted things. Absolutely. But, uh, you know, as delivery systems, for example. I mean, that, that's certainly one angle of it when you, when you get into the nanoparticle piece. But I'll send a link to this. This actual news story is a couple years old, but at Rice University, they built these things called nano dragsters. So they actually assembled structures with buckyballs as wheels and no real motor in them. But as they warmed up a surface of gold, because it could be very, very smooth, it would cause the buckyballs to spin in a particular direction. They could show these incredibly tiny, you know, 200 molecule across dragsters moving across a surface. Wow, that's very cool. It's been done. It's they they really do exist, but it also speaks to I think the most important piece of this, which is some of these nanomaterials that we're starting to see. Well, before you get into those, I w- I wanted to talk a, a bit about some stories that I saw in the news today, and uh, this is one from April. Uh, if you go to tinyurl.com/nanoforcancer, 
So as I was talking about, you know, developing nanoparticles as as a sort of drug delivery methods, and cancer is the perfect, uh, you know, uh, problem for this to solve. So here's a, a company, uh, and the headline is uh, DNA nanotechnology researchers develop a nanotrain for targeted cancer drug transport. University of Florida researchers have developed a DNA nanotrain that fast-tracks its payload of cancer-fighting drugs and bioimaging agents to tumor cells deep within the body. The nanotrain's ability to cost-effectively deliver high doses of drugs to, and here's the key, precisely targeted cancers and other medical maladies without leaving behind toxic nanoclutter has been the elusive holy grail for scientists studying the teeny tiny world of DNA nanotechnology. So the idea that you can sort of engineer these little molecules to go directly to, uh, you know, a cell to be attracted to a particular kind of cell, you know, usually by latching onto proteins and things like that, and then delivering its payload to that cell and only to that cell. And a lot of these uh, nanoparticles are actually completely bio harmless, you know, if they're in your bloodstream. But, you know, they they can be, of course. Or at least, certainly they want it to be. Whether it is, right. you know, the, the one thing I have challenges when, when you read any of these things is that invariably these papers are being put out to raise money to do more research. Right. Right? Like, it, the, this uh, this particular piece, the DNA nanotech for, for cancer, is related to a project that Caltech did around uh nanoparticles again to target cancer to do rna switching mm-hmm. so they had they, their vision there was and i can actually link to the 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 real research article which is almost impossible to read hmm. that yeah so the two characteristics of cancer cells rapid reproduction and immortality right and, Im- and immortality comes from the fact that they regrow their telomerase terminators oh every time they reproduce which mm-hmm. is something that single cell creatures do that multi-cell creatures don't do mm-hmm. and so they y- you use these mi- microparticles nanoparticles are supposed to be able to go into the cell shut that off so the rapid mm-hmm. reproduction basically kills off this cancer cell mm-hmm. the brilliant idea it's just that it's one thing to do that in the petri dish and it's another thing to do it inside of people yeah absolutely so it, it's we'll got a link to all these different articles, but it's very exciting to see that we're now dealing in a scale where it'll go through cell walls, right, and actually manipulate cells. That's really the sort of bio side. Uh, I'm even more excited. I think this is another article that you reference on the diabetes piece because it seems to me to be oh. even more sensible. Well, yeah. So this is great, and this is from the same uh, nanowork.com. But if you go to tinyurl.com/slash/nanodiabetes. Nanotechnology technique controls blood sugar in diabetics for days at a time. In a promising development for diabetes treatment, researchers have developed a network of nanoscale particles that can be injected into the body and release insulin when blood sugar levels rise, maintaining normal blood sugar levels for more than a week in animal-based laboratory tests. So this is crazy. So this is almost like having a little blood glucose meter inside your body and when the need arises hey we're just going to start producing insulin what well, which, that's yeah, insanely cool yeah that's more like a, you're you're basically making miniature pancreases that float around the blood system right right but what i appreciate about that is rather than something scary like here are nanoparticles that penetrate a cell and destroy it 
Right. This is, we're just adding a new system for giving you insulin as you need it. Right. We're giving you liquid pancreas. Weird. Yeah. But very cool. So they did uh, this experiment with mice and uh, they, you know, they're, one injection was able to maintain blood sugar levels in the normal range for up to 10 days. Interesting. Which is, yeah. So, and again, it's not, not a cure for diabetes, but certainly nope. a quality of life improvement by basically automating that ability to emit insulin in, in certain dosages as you need it. Yep. And that was done uh, by researchers at North Carolina State University, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and Children's Hospital, Boston. Awesome. So, uh, jumping out of the other element of biology that I think is particularly interesting are some of these new coatings that are coming along for like anti uh, microbiology. Basically, uh, yes, surfaces that cannot become contaminated. Right. So it turns out that uh, silver nanoparticles are extremely harmful to plants and um, microorganisms. They kills them. So if you go to tinyurl.com slash plant extracts. This is an article about how some plant extracts can produce these nanoparticles. And then there are uh, companies like this one in Iran. Uh, if you go to, uh, and you'll, you'll, you're going to read something even more interesting, I'm sure, tinyurl.com slash nanocloth kills microbes. This is a material that was made by Iranian researchers um, that uh, discovered new microorganisms that are able to produce gold and silver nanoparticles, and they turn that into a cloth that essentially can be used in medicine, drug delivery, cloths, and bandages as a antimicrobial cloth. Yeah, it's it's and, and yeah, we get to just direct applied stuff. Oxytitan right. are guys uh, that create a, a spray that you put down on surfaces that basically continuously kill bacteria just by exposing it to sunlight. Yeah. Now, um, I'm of two minds when it comes to killing bacteria because we're learning now that 99.9% of the bacteria that we come into contact with on a daily basis is actually good for balancing out the, we were talking about how life fights for survival, good yep. for balancing out all of the negative stuff and keeping us healthy. So killing all the bacteria isn't a good idea. We just want to watch out for the nasty ones, you know, E. coli and Steptococcus and all that yeah. stuff. Well, it's also places where you want bacteria to be. You don't want to try and kill a bacteria in you. No. But for a hospital, having every doorknob, every wall surface, all surfaces yeah. that are just structural, free of bacteria, is a pretty good capability. The fact absolutely. that it would sort of happen naturally. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in fact, they're using uh, – I, I don't have a reference to it, but I came across an article about how – uh, they're engineering superbug killer nanoparticles, and this might might have been the same thing for hospitals. Yeah, absolutely. There's a bunch of different companies that are building that, and and it's because it's a huge issue, without a doubt. I'd, right. I'd, I'd, and I'd rather kill them via the mechanical effects of silver titanium dioxides, these nanoparticles, than trying to kill them with antibiotics by right. by chemical means, organic means. Yeah, because that basically just makes them more resistant. More resistant. Yeah, exactly. That's a very good uh, point. You know, in less technologically cool things, there's a company called Indochino, which is a clothing manufacturer, and they have a nanotech suit ah. that l literally for 600 bucks, 
You literally can't stain it. Like the guy literally throws water on his suit and it just beads and rolls off. Oh my god, I need that for my shirts when I eat Italian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't ever take Carl Franklin to an Italian restaurant when he's wearing a white shirt. <laughs> Unless yep. it's a nano shirt. Yeah, there I you love go. It. So, and, and I mean, again, not as sexy, but one of the coolest things I've ever seen is I got this out of packaging news. A group at MIT found a coating to put on the inside of ketchup bottles so that all the ketchup comes out of the bottle. Oh. <laughs> yeah, when we start talking about coatings that interface with my food, that's when I get a little leery. I didn't even like coated, you know, uh, cookware. I, I, I and you know there's nanotechnology too, right? I went to, uh, you know, a, a good kitchen store and I wanted a seven quart Dutch oven, right? And I, right. I'm talking about cast iron, and yes. they go, well, here's our cast iron stuff, and it's like La La Crusade, mm-hmm. but it's all coated with some crazy stuff that who knows what it is and who knows how safe it is, and you know the the coating on pa- pots and pans in the last, geez, thirty forty years has turned out to be some of the most lethal stuff. And, you know, you see people using metal spatulas and stuff on it. It's all scraped up and they're still cooking food. I'm like, what are you doing? It's crazy. So, uh, yeah. Well, and yeah, the 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 old um, non-stick surface, the Teflon surface, which yeah. is yeah, not, a, not a good thing. The, you know, the more modern science, as long as the stuff doesn't actually come off. I now have a new fry pan that that is again they say non-stick coated but they also say go ahead scratch the shit out of it yeah <laughs> it, it they they demonstrate by filling it full of of uh of steel nuts and shaking around it says it doesn't care you can't damage it hmm. yeah all right well i'm i'm still a little leery but you know it's all it's all just and this is a total aside here it's all because people don't want to take the time to season cast iron right yeah but it takes a little bit of elbow grease, and a little, you got to keep up with it. But it's worth it. It takes care and feeding. Hey, let's right. switch. Uh, there's two other areas I want to dig into as we're plowing along into this, and and I know what I know. Folks will come back and tell us more because I just I, when you look at nanotech, you're like, uh, it's so vast, huge, huge topic area. Yeah. Uh, the first is the whole carbon nanotube thing. Let's so do it. We actually talked about this. On one of the space shows when we were talking about space elevators. Space elevator, yep. Because space elevators require materials so strong mm. that for a long time it was just known as unobtainium. Unobtainium. Yes. <laughs> as long as we had this impossibly strong material, we could do this, but there's no such thing. It reminds me of that far side where the professor's writing an equation on the blackboards, taking up three or four blackboards, and then there's this thing, and then a miracle occurs, and the other guy says, I think you need to be a little more explicit here. <laughs> it's, which is exactly it, it. but as the, what I find really fascinating is in, when you, especially in, in nanomaterials, it's what you can do with carbon because yeah. carbon nanotubes are this assembly, basically single atom thick uh, layer that gets folded into a tube that allows us to carry things within it and is insanely strong. It's actually in the space elevator strength range. Yeah. Uh, our only challenge now is being able to manufacture it in quantity. Yeah, that, that's true. Um, so there are other other uh, forms of carbon that yep. uh, uh, are useful that have come out of nanotechnology. Let's talk about graphene. Yeah, I think... Well, and graphene actually opens the door to a whole discussion about what they call 
two-dimensional nanomaterials. So you get back to our original definition of nanotechnology, and one of the stipulations is at the nanoscale in at least one dimension. Right. Right? So when you start talking about graphene, graphene is this... Imagine the old subway tiles. You know those little hexagonal tiles? You see them everywhere in New York in the subways. The little So imagine those constructs of... Uh, carbon atoms interlinked together, one atom high, mm. endless hexagons. And it turns out when you assemble carbon that way, not only is it insanely strong, insanely strong, it also conducts electricity brilliantly. Uh, it uh, is able to be folded and, and wrapped around it to become a tube. Like there's all these crazy things that come out of graphene. And the, uh, just a couple of years ago, 2010, yeah. the... Uh, the guys who figured out how to actually start to make some significant quantity of graphene won the Nobel Prize, but they were yeah. doing it with scotch tape. It's crazy. They were essentially using scotch tape as a matrix to cause these things to assemble. The other description I've heard for these two-dimensional nanomaterials is two-dimensional crystals. Well, you know, we talk about the the two-dimensional aspect of it, how it's very strong, but you you sort of glazed over the real interesting thing about graphene, which is that it's conductive. Yeah. And that it's the most conductive, flattest, strongest material there is. And uh and it's you they're making uh high, what do they call them? Hypercapacitors? Uh ultra capacitors. Ultra capacitors. Yes. So, and there are other ultra capacitors out in the world. The, the idea of an ultra capacitor is sort of combine the best of a battery and the best of a capacitor. And a capacitor stores a lot of electricity for its size and can discharge it very quickly. Charges quickly, right. discharges quickly. But most capacitors leak. If you put power into them and you just leave it there, they lose it over time. Right. Now compare that to a battery, which holds a lot of power, charges slowly, discharges slowly, but also um, has minimal leakage. Right. All right. It's those combinations. What else capacitor tries to put those two things together? Can I make a capacitor that charges quickly, discharges quickly, it doesn't leak? And they've done it with superconductive materials, really expensive or very small scale. And then graphene came along. Yeah. Do you have a link to that uh, video where they took the uh, some graphene, they charged it with electricity for, I don't know, two seconds, and then attached an LED to it, which shined for days and days oh. and days. It was it was five minutes for two seconds charge, but that's still pretty darn good. Okay, five minutes for a two second charge, but you know, and it's how much graphene? It wasn't very much. No, it wasn't. So what the folks at UCLA came up with is they were trying to figure out a better way to manufacture graphene. And they weren't thinking about ultra capacitors at the time, which is, mm-hmm. you know, classic. And when you watch the video, you'll see that. I've, I've added yeah. a link to the show. So recognizing that the scotch tape method was not very productive, they were trying to come up with better ways to make graphene. And they mm-hmm. stumbled on, did you ever have a Helid Packard light scribe DVD burner? You know, I totally missed that craze. Uh you know, uh, that was not all, at all that very attractive to me. But I know what you're talking about. Yeah, because LightScribe, you're at, they actually put a you, you, they put a coating on the disc so that it was able to write. You could actually write your label directly onto the disc. Right, you etched and, it, and it had a slightly more powerful laser in it to make that possible. Mm-hmm. So uh, what these guys did, uh, the guy, the 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 lead researcher is a guy named Richard Kaner, um, is take a DVD, put a piece of a uh, thin plastic over it in the shape of the DVD and then 
pour, basically drip onto it, graphite, uh, graphite oxide in a water, just basically floating in water. So there was a layer on it, then put it in the drive, which is, this is, the whole thing is nuts, right? (laughs) It's crazy. And then ran the laser at full blast across the whole DVD, and the combination of heat and the precision of the laser, how accurate frequency-wise the laser is, caused it to create a sheet of graphene. Hmm. So almost more graphene than anybody had ever had before. They made it with a $300 DVD burner. Yeah, I would argue it was a, 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 a cheaper than that. But. Well, yeah, today it would be, but you know, it's just, it's amazing what they've come up with. And you just peel this thing off. And it's the beautiful part is it's all carbon. So it's pretty right. harmless. But yeah. it was from those initial experiments that they started saying, Hey, well, we have a laser that writes very precisely. Why don't we do lithography for it? So don't just make a big sheet of graphene, make graphene circuits. Right. That also is going to be bendable, twistable. You could roll it up. You know, it's, it's quite a flexible technique. So they started making these little uh, ultra capacitors by interleaving different uh, the the, uh, graphene side by side, almost like intertwining your fingers Hmm. so that you had as much surface area almost connecting, but not quite level uh, so that the electrons could pass their charges back and forth. And it'll created these ultra capacitors. And like you said, the classic demonstration was in their early experiments, two seconds of charging that ultra capacitor let an LED light for five minutes. Now, Think about a battery that is the size of a battery and the shape of a battery and maybe has the electrodes of a battery, but inside it's graphene. It's a bunch of these little micro supercapacitors. Right. Chained together. I mean, ideally, what what do you really want? You want a double A battery that charges in a few seconds and lasts for weeks. Right. And that's theoretically what we can get from this. But even bigger would be inside of phones inside of uh you know stuff that needs to be more flexible because it's one atom thick it can be stacked and uh, you know how about in a car how about in a laptop and and the stuff will will store and and produce electricity for a long long time do you have any numbers about the you know the difference in uh you know per mass of uh how much it can store we're talking about a hundred times denser storage and then a lithium the, ion, then a lithium ion, and that's just their first go. They have not pressed. It's really how tightly you could cut it. So now we get back to uh, nanolithography. They mm. were using a relatively, in the scheme of things, imprecise laser, something in a DVD burner, right? Yeah. But you start looking at very high frequency lasers. You should be able to write them finer and finer and finer and get more power density out of it. So the power density is not done yet. So Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread. But now, of course, it's component1spread.net. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.net and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Component 1. Smarter components for smarter developers. 
that's not the only thing you can do with graphene. Because graphene's conductive, you can and and it's only one atom thick, it's transparent. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a great technology if you wanted to say make your uh, uh, you wanted an ultra high resolution touch screen because mm. you can put it over top of a regular screen and and, uh, and, and touch it. You could even start building a more complex device with it. You could actually be a transparent LCD screen. And then we can go beyond graphene. I mean, graphene certainly opened the door to this two dimensional thing. But if you go to tinyurl.com slash two dimensional particles, there's uh, potential materials way beyond graphene that are, are 2D structures like metal, metal carbides and nitrides. Um, how about 2D silicon or silicine? And it's, it says here one particularly interesting analog to graphene would be 2D silicon or silicine. Uh, because it could be synthesized and processed using mature semiconductor techniques and more easily integrated into existing electronics than graphene currently is. Also, another a material of interest is 2D boron. Uh, so it's an element with worlds, worlds of unexplored potential. And there's a link here to a really fascinating article called 2D boron has potential advantages over graphene. Uh, and I highly recommend reading that. And so what they've really stumbled on with this graphene thing is this idea that these two-dimensional crystals, that they're only one atom thick, but Mm. they can be as big as you want them to be, changes the behavior of these atoms. They work differently. And uh, we're only just starting to scratch the surface of what these materials could possibly do. So, yeah, we... We still haven't covered everything that could be in nanotechnology. Mm -hmm. We're just exploring different bits. But nanotechnology has got us to think in these single-layer approaches, these single-atom approaches, and how those assemblies – it reminds me of lasers in a lot of ways. Right. You know, the whole thing with lasers is getting a particular frequency of light bouncing back and forth so that you can concentrate it, and it changes the behavior of light completely. Right. Now we're talking about doing that with atoms, assembling them in a completely consistent pattern – and they behave completely differently. Hmm. It's interesting. There's also some other uh, really cool things I found. Uh, self-cleaning paint, tinyurl.com slash self-cleaning paint. Nanolabs. Uh, it's pretty cool. Paint that cleans itself. It degrades Which pollutants. stick to it. Right. Uh, An energy harvester, tinyurl.com slash energy harvester. This one was interesting. So this is a little, um, what do you call it? It looks like a battery, but it, this company called Microgen has this energy harvester that harvests the vibrations of whatever, you know, around a 120 hertz uh, the, of whatever it's sitting on. So, and that will generate enough electricity to power, you know, communications devices like in factories. So instead of using uh, battery-based systems, they they put these little things and they they just vibrate back and forth and generate enough electricity to to uh, you know to to handle some uh, specific things that they need to do in factories. Yeah, it's really interesting once you get down to the nanoscale that you that motion itself is an energy source. Right. So you start being able to grab a, a tiny that tiny amount of power, typically to run other nano scale things. Right. Yeah. Right. In this case, it was all about uh, operating a smart network. So, uh, but it's interesting, and there's a really cool video there as well. Hey, uh, we also haven't talked about solar energy because um, apparently 
Nano Solar is the you know one company that we talked about in the Solar Energy Show. But there are a lot of ways in which nanotechnology can help uh, improve solar energy. And if you go to tinyurl.com slash nano plus solar, uh, there's a, a thing that shows four different ways in which things we've learned from nanotechnology can uh, increase the efficiency of solar panels. And a lot of companies are already using these technology, uh, these techniques. Well, and it only makes sense, right? You get back to those whole single uh, uh, atom-wide two-dimensional crystals, and right. that's what a lot of solar technology depends on. It's just going to make it wildly more efficient to be able to build this way. One way is by, you know, a, a nanomaterial has billions of tiny holes in it. And so these holes are so small, but, the, you know, light wavelengths are very small indeed, and they're not so small that they can't get trapped by these holes. So the idea is that you're increasing the surface of solar cells just simply by putting little, little, you know, very, very small holes in it. Um, and then, of course, layering those in a sandwich is another way that you can just completely uh, increase efficiency. So I've read about companies that are increasing efficiency by as much as 70% using nanotechnology. Yeah, that's transformative numbers. Yeah, it is. Now you're, now you're talking about, you know, that's solar's been on the bubble of getting good yield for a while. Right. And it's just coming up with better ways to build things. I love also love this idea that we just make paint out of that so that every surface is also collecting power. Yeah. And then, and <laughs> That's crazy. So in the reason yeah. we talked about this in the solar show, one of the reasons why um, first solar, I guess it was, went under, and people stopped caring about you know nanotechnology and solar, which is admittedly more expensive, is because the the Chinese dumped the market with solar panels. So yeah. so all of a sudden, real solar panels, while not as efficient, were so cheap that it didn't make sense investing anymore in that kind of stuff. But well, you know, we got into that good enough situation, right? right? And yeah. uh, al al always a dangerous spot to be because there's opportunities to be better and uh, to actually make a, you know, a substantial uh, a difference in uh, using power in a larger area. So, yeah, I think we're we're always on the bubble of is this good enough and now we mass produce it and drive the price down or do we keep innovating so that we can get to the higher numbers that are worth more? Yeah. Uh, I don't know the answers to that yet, my friend. We're, we're still digging around for it. But it is interesting to see how what started out as sort of a science fiction piece and this idea of of uh, building little robots has really turned into us understanding, I think, material science better than we ever have before, really the, understanding materials. One of the closest things to nanorobots I found is by a company, Stealth Biosciences, stealthbiosciences.com. They have two products. One is Nanostraws. And nanostraws provide direct fluidic access to cells. So they allow unparalleled two-way access to individual cells, like a straw, literally a straw you can stick in a cell to extract genes, proteins, or other molecules of interest, or deliver them. It's two-way. And another one that they have uh, is a stealth electrode, which gives you direct electrical access to cells. So that can help automate long-term intracellular electrical recordings of neurons and heart cells. It's pretty fascinating stuff. Yeah, and these guys, these stealth biosciences guys, they're brand new. Like, 
there it's only been in April the domain was registered their yep. first posts are on like clearly somebody's been doing research in the dark you know doing work by they're just coming out so this may be something huge they also got an award from breakout labs which is uh what is it one of the guys from uh paypal i think is an investor in breakout labs I, i'm not sure but anyway i think they you know they they look for up and coming companies to invest in and they they liked these guys stealth biosciences yeah, that's the Thiel Foundation. That's Peter Thiel, who's uh, one of the, you, they call him one of the guys of the PayPal mafia, along with Elon <laughs> Musk and a bunch of other cool, you know, they were they were one of the early folks that really made it big in internet and now are taking their money and, and spending it on these great uh, and hugely potentially powerful ideas. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I got one more for you. Sure. Tinyurl.com slash nuclear spins. One step closer to a quantum computer. So this guy, uh, uh, Wyman Chen, and his colleagues at Linkyuping University, in cooperation with German and American researchers, have succeeded in both initializing and reading nuclear spins relevant to uh, qubits or for quantum computers at room temperature. So this is a huge step forward to uh, quantum computers. So they it can essentially, you know, read the spin of electrons on, uh, on nuclei. And there has been uh, qubit technology around. Like D-Wave has had a 128 qubit chipset uh, computer. Mm -hmm. So I'm still trying to figure out exactly what these guys have done different. Well, they did it at room temperature. I think that's the key. Yeah, maybe. It is really interesting. I mean, of course, quantum computing has a lot to do with nanotech. Mm -hmm. It's at that scale. Yeah, it is absolutely at that scale. Yeah. Uh, so it is all interesting, my friend. I do I do like uh, you, you, the bit you found there on the dark side of nanotech and just talking about nanoparticles' yeah. effects on the lungs. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, if you go to tinyurl.com slash lungs. So these nanoparticles are everywhere, you know, especially if you ever thought about fixing your own iPhone, you know, you lift up that glass and and some nanoparticles spill out. Jeez, that might be really bad for your lungs. In fact, it is really bad for your lungs, but uh Well, do you remember uh will it blend? Yeah. I did. Yeah, cuz he blended an iPhone. Right. And then at the end of it he said he 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 sort of lifted, went to lift the lid and said, don't breathe this. This is iPhone dust. iPhone dust bad. iPhone dust bad. But yeah, the, you know, I mean, it's well known that very fine particles get caught in lungs and cause inflammation. I mean, that's, uh, you go all the way back to stuff like um, Copy asbestos, machines. Right? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. I don't think nanoparticles necessarily make it any worse. They're just yet another thing that's an irritant to lungs. The challenge here is there's a lot more of it around, and you have right. to take it seriously. Right. Cystic fibrosis. And, it's nothing to mess yeah, around with. Yeah, and regular filters just aren't going to cut it. We need nanofilters for that, which is another thing that graphene is capable of doing. They talk about gra using uh, – Lockheed Martin had a piece on graphene being used in sheets to do uh, saltwater filtration for fresh water. Wow. So just because it's such a fine mesh, the salt can't go through and the water can. 
Graphene, man. That's the, the star of this show, I think. Yeah, it might be. The, it's a product you and I have been talking about a lot. It's certainly driven mm. me to want to do more nano discussions. Absolutely. All right, Richard, that's the show. You bet. And as always, folks, you know, our first foray into nanotechnology, let us know what we didn't cover, what you'd like to hear more of. Uh, we're happy to dig into this further. You can write us an email, rocks at franklins.net, or write a comment on the website at rocks.com or in the mobile apps. Thanks again for listening. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions. Providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklin's.com. .net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band.